Jodcast, a bi-monthly podcast now releasing every seven months, apparently. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogashanu, Samuel Leske, Fiona Porter, Mariam Rashid, Jonathan Wong, and Michael Wright. The Jodcast, December 2021 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Fiona Porter, and joining me actually in the studio for the first time since, I think, March 2020, is Mariam Rashid. Hello there. In the show this time, Michael Wright interviews Tom Scragg about pulsar timing, including his PhD and current research projects, and Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogoshanu, and Samuel Leske take a look at what's happening in the December night sky. But first, before all of that, Here's Jonathan Wong with this month's news. In the news this month, the Decadal Review, Iodine Propulsion, and the launch of DART. Firstly, in the United States, the Decadal Review, made by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, has been published. This is done by the Board of Physics and Astronomy, usually around the start of a new decade, and outlines key proposals for what will be done in the future for astronomy. The US as a country is the world's largest investor in astronomy, so this review is very important in shaping how the field progresses. To give a few examples, the review from the 1970s pushed for the construction of the Very Large Array. The 1980s review pushed for a space-based advanced X-ray telescope, which resulted in the launch of the Chandra X-ray Observatory in 1999. The review in 2001 led to the construction of the James Webb Space Telescope. The major proposal this time is for a large 6-metre diameter space telescope in infrared, optical and ultraviolet. The telescope would be able to perform imaging and spectroscopy with the sales pitch being that it could be used to detect biosignatures in habitable zone exoplanets. More broadly though, with recent missions giving astronomers large numbers of exoplanets found, this telescope would be able to focus on interesting targets, giving more detailed spectra so we have a better idea of their composition. The plan would be for this telescope to be planned later this decade, with an initial launch date in the 2040s. Other proposals in the Decadal Review include maintaining the Explorer program and the creation of a probe class of missions. The Explorer program involves smaller, low-budget space missions. It is split into medium class, small, and university class. They tend to be missions with a single or narrow focus, meaning they still produce high-quality research at those budgets. For example, both ACE, the Advanced Composition Explorer, and WMAP, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, are Explorer medium-class missions. The previous Decadal survey pushed for an expansion of the Explorer program, leading to more proposals and more successful launches. This decade, one of the major proposals is to build on this program, and in particular to keep the launch rate high for these smaller missions. The idea for the probe class comes from the review seeing a large gap between the medium class explorer missions and the major missions, what the review refers to as large strategic missions. This gap is rather obvious in terms of the finances and timescales. The largest medium explorer missions cost in the hundreds of millions, capped at $350 million, and there is nothing between that and Planck or JWST size missions. The proposed probe class would have a funding cap like the explorer missions, but larger, and aim for a launch every decade. Far more regular than the flagship telescope launches. In other news, a paper has recently been published reporting on the use of iodine as a way to propel small satellites. The key to this idea is that of 
electric propulsion, which works by first ionising a gas, then it is possible to accelerate those ions to produce thrust. Currently, these systems use xenon as their propellant, but as the authors point out, xenon is rare, expensive to make, must be stored at high pressure. Iodine has been proposed as an alternative many times before. It would eliminate the need for high pressure containment and is less rare than xenon. However, this is the first time an iodine propulsion system has been tested by performing manoeuvres in space. The paper shows a test of an electric propulsion system using iodine as a propellant, detailing the construction of the system, which was built into a CubeSat, then describing tests of propulsion system on Earth in a cryostat, before finally detailing a test of the system in orbit, which results both from onboard telemetry and from being tracked by the US Sky Surveillance Network. Some of the technical challenges this project faced include the electronegativity of iodine, which was mitigated by using a polymer film coating on many of the parts, and the use of technical ceramics such as zirconium oxide, used to make some of the components. Also, the potential problem of vibration breaking the initially solid iodine was solved by embedding the iodine in a ceramic block. The paper demonstrates the cost savings from using iodine as the propellant, both in reducing the cost of the fuel itself, but also reducing the cost of the hardware needed, mainly as iodine can be stored as a solid and sublimated, meaning no need for the high-pressure containers used in xenon systems. In future, this lower cost could enable more small-scale missions to include propellants, as currently many CubeSat missions do not. This means an opportunity for more interesting science results due to small, low-cost satellite missions adding the ability to position themselves in space, and the ability to bring a far larger fraction of our small missions out of orbit, while currently most CubeSat missions are left in space. Finally, the DART mission was launched. DART, standing for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, is a mission to impact an asteroid in order to redirect its orbit. The target is a binary asteroid system of Didymos and a smaller orbiting satellite, Dimorphos. The plan is to crash DART into Dimorphos and observe how it moves in response to the impact. As Dimorphos is orbiting Didymos, we have a great knowledge of its orbit. In particular, we know its current orbital period to an impressive degree of accuracy. The reason for this experiment is because this method is a good way to prevent near-Earth objects from reaching Earth. If one were to be on a collision course with Earth, we would want to force it away. However, destroying the object could still be dangerous, replacing one large object with a large number of smaller fragments. The safe option would be to give a small kick to the asteroid, nudging its orbit while it is still a safe distance to the point that it is no longer a danger to Earth, without causing it to break up unpredictably. DART will let us test this idea in space on a system which is far away and on an orbit which does not intersect with Earth. The mission also includes the light Italian CubeSat for imaging of asteroids. Ten days before impact, this smaller satellite will separate from DART and will use both a high-resolution imager and a large field-of-view camera to record the impact. Between these recordings and other measurements of the Didymos Dimorphos system, we should be able to study in detail the effect of the impact. That was the news this month. Now back to the studio. Thanks for that, Jonathan. Now, Michael Wright interviews Tom Scragg about pulsar timing, including his PhD and current research projects. Hello. This month, we have a very interesting interview with Dr. Tom Scragg. Hello, everyone. Hello, Mike. Hello. Oh, Jodcast stalwart Tom Scragg, and you are now a doctor. You've now... You've now done your PhD. Yeah, I finally graduated last year. 
the week before lockdown first started. So it's Ooh. been a, a major change since then. You got you got that in just in time. <laughs> That's good going. That's good going. So what are you doing now then? Has that finished? What have you went on to? Um, I got a couple of temporary postdoctoral contracts up in UCLan, the University of Central Lancashire, working on a couple of projects related to what I'd done during my thesis. Um, so I'd been involved with DARA, which is the Development of Astronomy in Africa, uh, which is a kind of technology transfer precursor to the build of the SKA. I'm still involved with that and some of the teaching side. And the development of a telescope down in Goonhilly, um, in Cornwall, to be added to emailing, which is another strand related to what I was doing during the thesis. Okay, then. Now, we're talking about strands coming from what you were doing in your thesis, so could you sort of give us a brief overview of what projects you were doing there? Okay, I had two main projects for my thesis. Um, both were pulsar timing systems. So for those that don't know, a pulsar timing system is something that helps us detect and detect the time of arrival of pulses from pulsars so that we can time the difference in intervals from one observation to the next to detect changes. And that gives us a lot of information about what's happening with the pulsar, what's happening with the interstellar media, what's happening in the close environment around the pulsar. So it's a very useful tool. It does mean processing an awful lot of data because pulsars are very faint. Um, so we have to have long recordings and then we have to condense that down to what is a few milliseconds, tens of milliseconds, maybe a second wide at most of a pulse. And we determine the time of arrival and compare that with our models that say, based on what it's done in the past, this is when it should be arrived. And any difference is great as long as it's not an error in our measurements, because that gives us information on what's going on. So, Pulsar Timing System. The first one I was developing was a hybrid system. So this is a new model for Pulsar Timing Systems. Rather than lots of individual computers, servers working together, we were trying to use GPUs, uh, graphics processor units, that you find in most of the gaming PCs and high-end laptops to do the very repetitive high volume processing that we get with pulsar timing. But sitting in a, a much cheaper workstation or enterprise class server, so that it's effectively a very cheap system, 10,000 pounds or thereabouts. Whereas previous ones are either purpose designed, which is expensive and difficult and you can't change them very easily, or multi-node systems, which couldn't cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. Wow, that's yep. a big improvement. Yeah, I, it's, you know, as technology progresses, as computing progresses, what you can do gets faster and cheaper. And that's really where GPUs came in for us. Other people are using the same principle and developing their own systems, but this is specifically for Africa. Um, although we're expanding the use of it here at Jodrell Bank as well, we're going to print on the back of the, the level at some stage to enhance the, the system that's already there, which is now, I don't know, 15 years old. It gets more difficult to get spares when things are that old. So I'd like to narrow this down a bit. Okay. You, you're talking about working in, in Africa with, the, with this project. Where specifically, is there any particular telescope that you're working with? 
Yeah, it's in Ghana, just north of Accra. The telescope itself is a redundant Earth station, satellite Earth station, that used to be owned by Vodafone, one of the telecommunications providers there. When they get more fibre and cable connectivity, then the, the Earth stations became a bit redundant. You know, they're not great capacity, they're, they're nicely available, but once you've got fibre along the coast, you put all your traffic on that. So these things were, were gifted to the government, along with half a dozen others in different countries across Africa. Back in 20, 2009, somebody had the bright idea that these big 25 metre dishes could be converted to use as radio telescopes. So with a, a bunch of international agreements, uh, it was decided, yes, we'll start converting them. They'll make a VLBI network, a very long baseline interferometer network, across most of um, southern and central Africa. doesn't have an awful lot of engineering experience or astronomical radio telescope type experience. So this is a good building platform, training platform, when the SKA arrives in force in South Africa. Plus you get lots of technology transfer. So I was working on the conversion of the first of them, which is the telescope at Katunsi, near Accra in Ghana. So it's just five degrees north of the equator, so you get a good view of the sky north and south. Oh, wonderful. So is that sort of then a particularly good place to observe pulsars, or is this just we have it so we might as well use it. It is a good place because you, you're looking at the galactic centre there's um, far more radio telescopes in the northern hemisphere than the southern hemisphere although that balance is changing significantly with the, the SKA and its precursors coming online. So you get a better view the more telescopes you've got for pulsar astronomy the better because you can settle on a target and monitor it for a long time a long period and that lets you establish the timing more accurately and lets you detect fainter and fainter pulsars. With timing, you have to go back to the target regularly to detect these changes that we were, you know, I, I briefly mentioned earlier. So it's not, oh, we found it now, that's great, there's a pulsar over there. We need to go back and look at it again after a period. So if you look at the crab, for example, we monitor the crab from Doddle Bank for 10, 12 hours a day, every day, because it's a young pulsar, it does lots of things, it's lots of changes, there's drifting clouds of gas and dust within the nebula. Um, it's very exciting to, 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 to monitor it and to see the changes, but you, you are taking virtually a whole telescope for half a day, every day. So now we've got 3,000 odd pulsars, we need to go back and regularly monitor each one to see what the changes are. Now some are very stable, we don't see a lot of changes, or some are very faint and it would take an inordinate amount of time to go and observe. So if it's not doing anything interesting, it's there as a reference, but it's not something we'd look at daily. There are other pulsars that we look at um, much more regularly. One of the programs I've got with E. Merlin, for example, looks at a collection of six pulsars monthly. Okay. Because they do different things and they do interesting things that we need to track and um, take take account of. One thing that I do want to ask though is you, you're saying you're observing these and coming back or observing six in a month. Is is there any pattern to sort of when you observe a particular pulsar in that set 
to make sure you get sort of interesting things or between when you can observe it and when you would rather observe something else? Not a pattern as such. Strictly speaking, what you need to do is observe a pulsar frequently enough so that within the confines, the limits of the model you've got of its behaviour, you don't drift out more than a whole pulse. Because then you don't know if you've gone extremely early or it's the last pulse that's extremely late, you know, based on your model. So you have to keep the phase coherence. That is, make sure you've accounted for every single pulse of that pulsar. So it kind of depends on how good your model is and how erratic the pulsar can be. I was going to say, that sounds like quite a bit of a jigsaw to fit all the pulsars that you want in. Um, yes. And there are, at Dodwell Bank, we monitor a whole set of pulsars quite frequently, but it does vary from the crab, which is every day for long periods, to some that we may go back to on a yearly basis to make sure they're still there or make sure that they're not drifting too much, that our models are still good. There are some, for example, pulsars in binary systems where they make close approaches to the um, host star and we'll want to monitor during that whole period as best we can to see what effect, see if we can detect relativistic effects, for example, or gravitational effects or interactions with the companion star's atmosphere if the pulsar comes close enough. Now, depending on the orbit, that could be, you know, that happens every month or every year, or there's one um, where it's a 50-year cycle. Oh, blimey. And we had great excitement because it, it was happening recently and we had the, the Lovell monitoring the telescope. I mean, other teams, not me personally. But so it does vary according to the pulsar and what science we're looking at and what we're trying to see. You'll also find there are some groups of pulsars that we monitor very regularly looking for the effect of gravitational waves on the the time of arrival of the the pulses from the pulsar. What you'd normally see with a pulsar is random uh, random variations at a certain level. But if we look at 100 pulsars, say, on a regular basis and we get a gravitational wave passed through our line of sight, in theory at least, we should be able to see that as a progressive effect on groups of pulsars as it moves across um, our lines of sight to the different pulsars. So we're looking at using that for the detection of gravitational waves. Ah, okay. Although, interesting, you say it's moving across our lines of sight. Is that going to be something that's, like, does that make it easier or more difficult to sort of tune this in with things that are detecting gravitational waves here? Um, it's different frequencies. We get into the, the, the area I'm not an expert in, uh, but they're looking at different wavelengths. So the um, Earth-based detectors that are directly detecting gravitational waves coming across the Earth work on a particular wavelength, whereas when we're looking at clusters of pulsars, then it's a different wavelength, and obviously they don't necessarily have to come across the Earth itself at the same time, because as it moves through the sky, we can see it affects the signal path from each pulsar to us. That's interesting and also slightly frustrating that you can't just have a nice oh we detected this and we also detected this in space as easily it's the same as looking at electromagnetic radiation everything from x-rays the radio through light through infrared 
through ultraviolet, you're looking at different wavelengths and you're using different instruments to do it. Some are based on the, the surface of the Earth, some have to be in space uh, above the water barrier in the atmosphere, the vapour barrier in the atmosphere, so that we can detect the signal at all. Yeah, that, that's true, I suppose. <laughs> I'm hoping for something woefully optimistic, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. But, yeah, you're... I'm wondering, that's the sort of thing that I was, I was hoping you'd sort of give me a, a little bit of detail about, was you were saying about working with E. Merlin. Mm-hmm. So, shall we go on sort of what are you doing with E. Merlin? What was your the part in the project? Okay. It was a pulsar timing system. Once you've done one, the next one's not quite so difficult. Now, email is a collection of six or seven telescopes, depending on the configuration, scattered across um, the central belt of the UK. And its main job is to look at detail of continuous signals in space, so it examines structures down in fine detail. What we wanted to do um, was use it to look at pulsars and to help with timing pulsars. Now you've got six different dishes, they all have different performance. Um, there's two, three different sizes of dish and they're in different radio environments, different radio frequency interference in their local areas. So we get two advantages from using eMerlin. One, I've got six dishes rather than having to buy or somebody having to buy and operate a big telescope like Lovell and um, we can use much smaller dishes that are already there we can use the off time when it's not observing other things and because they're in different radio environments we can use that difference you know by combining signals together and then rejecting ones that are markedly different say well okay that's probably RFI so we'll reject that data for that period and then come back to the other telescopes and use the other telescopes. And then the next second, because interference can be very short duration, we can do the same again and look across the six telescopes and say, well, that one's now getting a lot of RFI, a lot of interference. So we, we can reduce the noise that we experience on the overall system um, by rejecting out-of-character RFI. It's obviously not from the celestial source that we're looking at. It's something local. Yes, that's wonderful because obviously if you've got one telescope you just sort of throw your hands up like uh... Yes, there's too much noise therefore we need ten times as long to observe the source to get a good signal yes. It's all about signal to noise ratio and yes, the longer you take obviously the more time you're taking on the telescope the less you can do with other things But you've now got six or seven shots at getting a really good signal with low noise Um... Yes, by combining them together, we can make it look like a telescope that's much bigger than any individual dish. So we're not depending on single um, big dish telescopes. Um, It's an existing system and it's already um, built and operational, so we can work with that. It's a lot simpler for us to manage. And because we can combine the data, we get a lot of improvement in the signal-to-noise ratio just from that principle. It's not quite as effective as the Lovell. It's about a third um, from what I can remember from the um, from my thesis. It's, some, it's in one of the chapters. Um, the collecting area works out to be about a third as effective as um, a single big telescope like the Lovell. But then we don't have to buy, um, buy and build another big telescope just to get the same thing going. And you can use this on 
in principle on any collection of telescopes. It's not new, a lot of people have been doing it, but again, it's a specific retrofit to uh, a national facility. We use GPUs in the processing of the data, but not in the collection. And again, it's a fairly low cost system that gathers the data and then lets us process it. Okay, and you're, you're saying that lets us process it. Is this then something that you've been trying to make available for sort of like anyone interested in, or sort of any astronomers interested in Pulsar observing can petition to use it? Yes, email in, advertise it on their website. Although in practice, we, we're still tweaking a few things. If somebody came along and wanted to observe Pulsars, um, they could do. It might have to be myself or Charlie or one of the other people at Dodwell Bank help them with the observation. Certainly running the telescopes is done by the normal team, the observers and the engineers and the schedulers. But running Lofty, which is the, the name we've given to the Pulsar timing system, um, it's a bit handcrafted at the moment, but we're working on that so that it will literally be turn up, book time, collect your data, take it away and process it, or process it on site using the, the facilities at Jodrell. It's slowly getting there. Is that is that something, is that what you're, some of the things you're working on at the moment then? Um, yeah, know. I've got a series of observations. Um, so we, like others, I'm in a couple of teams that have bid for time on emailing to actually carry out observations. And we've got some time awarded, um, actually on the telescope, when we're, we're in the middle of a run um, at the moment. So you get six months observing cycles. And I was lucky to get awarded eight hours effectively per month over the, the current observing cycle. So we go back every month and we run a set of observations. We've done three so far and we've got another three left to do. Some of the FRB detections are a bit bit more ad hoc rather than scheduled, they're targets of opportunity. Um, but again, we're using the same system to capture the data and process it slightly differently than for pulsar timing. You know, we try and make these things as multi-purpose as possible. Um, FRBs, fast radio bursts. So it's another thing we, we use the pulsar timing systems or can use the pulsar timing systems to investigate. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sense you're leading me on to a question here. Uh, how, um, how would one do that? On Lofty, what we've got is a store and process system. So we capture the data in real time. We don't process it in real time. We look at it afterwards. What that means is we've got a host of data stored on the system, a very high time resolution. You know, data samples of nanoseconds width stored on the, on the system, which means we can come back and do multiple analysis on it. We do combining, we get the pulse profiles out, we, we do the noise reduction for, for normal pulsar timing. So we can process it for fast radio bursts, which are very short duration, milliseconds, bursts of energy, but very bright. Most of them so far have been discovered to come from outside of the galaxy, based on an analysis of the signal that says the dispersion measure puts it at an extra galactic distance. But we can do that with the same data because it's now in digital format, it's not corrupted, it's not changed, it's not altered in any way, so we can do multiple analysis on it. We don't do that with the PTS on the level. We have a different method for doing that. The first pulsar timing system I worked on, called Hebe, um, works in real time. So as the data comes in, 
It's analysed, folded, stacked, frequency, de-dispersed. We look at all of the characteristics to get a pulse out as we're observing the data. Whereas the Lofty, we store the data and process it afterwards. Okay, so that gives you an advantage storing the data, but what was the advantage of, like, not what was the advantage of doing it straight away, getting the pulse out, like in the earlier system? The advantage with um, processing the data in real time, it means you don't have to store it. So you still have to process it, even if you store it and then look at it afterwards. But with pulsar timing, we've got samples that are nanoseconds wide. We process it down to look for events of millisecond duration, and that's an awful lot of data. Uh, With Lofty, for example, we take the data down to two bits of resolution, but it's still microseconds long, and for an eight-hour observation, I'm talking about uh, nearly 18 terabytes of data that we store. Mm. Um, And we still have to go back and, and process that at some stage. So you need another machine, another computer system that can process the data as fast as you can take it. Otherwise, you take a block of data, it fills your storage capacity up. You have to wait until you've processed it and your storage capacity is free again. For straight pulsar timing, it's better if we can process in real time because we get the answers faster, you know, within hours or minutes of an observation. Where if you're doing an FLB search, for example, you can do it in real time, but that's a whole other um, computer system that you know I've not been working on. So there's swings and roundabouts. Uh, yes, and I guess then is that something that's becoming the storage? Is that something that's now starting to become easier or sort of less of a problem as we're getting better computing? Over a decade, yes. So over five or ten uh, years, uh, yes. But you know, I can fill. The 100 terabytes have been allocated by the three observations I've already done virtually um, with the, the analysis products and the rest. And I still need space to store the next set of observations. So I've still got to process it as fast as I can. And when you're talking about storage in hundreds of terabytes, it's not that cheap and it, it can be quite difficult to arrange connectivity between your instrument and your storage system that's fast enough because at the moment I store locally on Lofty the data from one observation, so that's the 18 terabytes. To transfer it to the offline storage then can take days, depending on the speed of the the link and the amount of error checking that that goes on between them. Oh, I didn't even even think of that as a problem, but yes. I mean, that's that's a lot of data to transfer. Yeah. Yeah. And the Lofty itself is configured in such a way we've got um, four disk drives, but they're arranged as a stripe. So you write the first part of data to, to one. While that's writing, the next block of data is already to write. So we write it to the second disk in the stripe, and then the third, and then the fourth. And only that way can we get a write speed fast enough to disk to keep up with the data rate that's coming in um, from our telescopes. So we, we're talking a gigabyte per second of data um, across our system, across the, the, the Lofty system. It's, it's a lot of data. And if you think a, a three-hour movie on a Blu-ray even is only three gigabytes and four gigabytes, there's an awful lot of data there and it's arriving very quickly. There's just sort of 
one more thing that I wanted to ask you about this. It's kind of on on a tangent, but since we're talking about computing, mm-hmm. the thing that you mentioned earlier that interested me was using GPUs. This seems to be a lot of what your project does. Yeah, I'd like to go into that in a bit more detail. So, so what about GPUs made them what you were looking at using? Okay, GPUs are a completely different design than the normal CPU. So in your laptop or your desktop computer, you'll get a CPU. It may have four or five or eight or 12 cores within it. And the actual core itself is the bit that does the processing. To go back to my um, computer science days, which was part of my first degree, it's actually the arithmetic and logical unit. So you bring an instruction in, you bring a bit of data in, Depending on the program, it tells you what to do with that data. You modify it, you shift it left, you divide by two, wherever it is you're doing on that particular information. You then write it back out to main memory. And then the next instruction, you do the same thing. You bring the instruction in, you bring the data that's associated with it into the core, to the arithmetic and logical unit. Do the action that the instruction tells you to do write it out again. So it's a very multi-step process. It takes a lot of clock cycles to, to do all these fetches and divisions and multiplies and shifts and then storage again. Within a um, GPU, they're designed differently. For a start, the program is assumed to be relatively fixed. So you load it in once and then what changes is the data that you bring in. So you do the same instruction or the same sequence of actions on different data which means you've got very a much reduced uh, number of transfers from memory to the, the, the arithmetic unit, to, to the bit that actually does the, the changes and calculations within the computer. They're also built, because they're meant as image processors, and what you do with image processing for games and the like is just the fractional changes from what happened the last time. Oh, of course, because it's yeah. images. <laughs> yeah, so not all of the image changes, but... The processors we use, the GPUs we use, have 1,046 separate cores or processing units within them. There's a very, very fast memory associated with all of these cores. So you do a bulk transfer of data into the the local cache. You then process that cache using a fixed instruction. Whatever your program says to do at that point, it does it. It doesn't have to fetch a new instruction and do it again it's already there, and then writes it out again to a very fast local cache. And then you do a bulk transfer to main memory. But you're looking at 1,046 cores doing this work for you. It's so it's massively parallel processing. So I was thinking, I'll try to think sort of CPU, like that's, that's an enormous number of cores if you were trying to do that on a CPU. Yeah. That is I, Yeah, I mean, most of the big parallel systems will approach that. But then these days, most of the big parallel computing systems use lots of parallel GPUs to do the same thing. So you break down your program into the, the simplest instructions that you can that can be handled by a GPU. The other thing is they have very simple instructions. On a CPU, you have what's called complex instruction sets, which means you can bring a number in, divide it by a number from another location, shift it left, and then output it again as a single instruction. Whereas originally that's actually, you know, four, five, six different transfers and instructions actually going on. As a programmer or a computer user, you don't see all of that complexity. It's done in the background. With GPUs, it's very much more simple. 
instructions and a very restricted instruction set. So you bring in everything in one go. And again, that's the other thing that makes them faster. We not only store the program on board all the time and don't change it, we have a very reduced instruction set to, to play with. So you have to make your programs as simple as possible. And that does help, especially with this kind of processing we do, which is vast amounts of data, but the same basic operation in each one. Add this to the last one, add this to the last one, add this to the last one, and so on and so on. Is you know a, a classic technique that we do, and that's just a single instruction and a memory transfer every time. That's amazing. You managed, you made that work. <clears throat> Other people wrote the software. I mean, CPUs, GPUs have been around for a long time, yeah. um, and that's the the basis of the the way image processing works on gaming systems. So the, the principles are there. There's a lot of support tools and environments, software development environments available. We used a common suite of software that's used throughout the, the, the Pulsar community, if you like, to help process the data. They've been adapted to run on a GPU. So what we were concerned about was making sure we've got all the peripheral environment right so we could use that capability which means a big, uh, you know, a fairly robust machine, a very fast bus rate on the, the, the motherboard. So we can plug the GPUs in, we can connect the serial interfaces or the LAN interfaces in this case to the, the instruments digitizing the data for us and make sure we get transfer rates fast enough. Because although the GPU may count, uh, may be able to cope with the processing demands, does the motherboard of the whole system is that fast enough to handle the data transfers? Um, and now we've got two GPUs because they, they're not quite fast enough to do all of the bandwidth and processing. So I've got two GPUs, I've got two data input ports providing me data and I've got to get that data from there to the CPU and back out again and then right to disk. So the system has to be fast enough. The CPUs have to be big enough to handle this as in its management of the interfaces rather than the processing task itself and writing it out to disk so we've got the, the information available. Wow. So yeah, it's it, it was good fun. It certainly sounds fascinating. Yeah, it helped. My, my background, my original degree was computer science and applied physics. Most of my career has been software or systems related. Although the latter half is radio and telecommunications, so... Yeah, it, it was a nice fit. It was something I thought, hmm, yeah, I could, I could make a good go of that. And that seems to be happening a lot more now in astronomy. I mean, there's an enormous amount of demand for people that you know, computers know. It's interesting to me that there's now a lot of people like that really involved in astronomy. Yeah, I mean, it goes along with the, the whole automation of some of the tasks, some of these very repetitive tasks. And the fact that now with um, modern, pro modern processing power, you can do things flexibly. So two years ago, it was a certain model, a certain algorithm for doing processing. This year, that's been tweaked and it works a bit faster. So it's a simple soft change in software to implement that. Whereas say 20 years ago, when you were doing this in Pulsar Timing, That'd be a hardware change. 20 years ago, the only systems that were fast enough were purpose-designed hardware. So application-specific integrated circuits where you'd have to design 
the actual application in electronics and get a couple of chips built, plug it into your instrument and away it went. You know, it's, it did the job at the time, just yeah. fast enough. But obviously that could take you a year to design and build an ASIC and test it and then make sure it's right. And you've only bought two of them because somebody else is doing it slightly differently and wants the system their way. Yes, there was, there was some commonality, but we're still only talking tens or maybe hundreds of devices to the same design. And if you think um, these days, production lines produce a million smartphones a day just from one manufacturer, then these are very low volume, highly specialised and therefore highly expensive designs. And next year you might want to do it slightly differently because it's a better way of doing it. And you can't because you have to go through the whole process again and spend the money. But now you can work with these devices that are already there and already in sort of fairly large numbers for a lot of it. Yeah, and, and things change. Things still do change. The original GPUs we put in the first system that went out to Ghana, for example, are now on the third generation, third iteration of the GPUs that would go in if we were to do another machine today. We'd skip a generation of wow. GPUs and go to the next one. Yeah, design advances. It's still a fairly new and young area. So you can get more bang for your buck. It's been wonderful to talk to you. It's been oh, great to have you. It's been great to have you back. That was Dr. Tom Scragg. Thank you for being with us. You're, you're most welcome. It's very yeah. very nice to talk about it again. Lovely. And now back to the studio. Thanks for that, Mike. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Mariam, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So the little news story that I saw this time around. At the end of November, so November 29th, we actually had a anniversary. So it was 54 years ago on that day that Australia launched its first satellite. Ooh. Yeah. So that actually made Australia the seventh nation to reach space unmanned, which surprised me. I actually thought it would be higher up on the list than that. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you think of the space race, you think of the big players, obviously, were the US and, at the time, the USSR. Yeah. So modern Russia and surrounding countries. But I have to admit, I hadn't really thought about who would have come after that. Do you know who? I do. Do you want to have a guess before I tell you? Ooh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, Let me think. I know Japan has a space agency. They do, but they weren't before Australia Mm, to get into space. Fair enough. I suppose they were still going through a lot of their big economic growth at the time, weren't they? I imagine so. Right, let me think. Uh, Satellites, satellites... Mm. China probably also would have been later, is yeah, my guess. Later. If it's just satellites, though, instead of like manned missions, I suppose that's when I can start counting things like Britain. But Britain doesn't really have its own space program. UK is up there. Yeah, so it's Soviet Union, USA, then the UK. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. Um, I would guess probably some other European countries, maybe. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if like, maybe France was on the list. France is number six. France is number six. Okay, so I'm missing another two, right? Yes. Okay. One more. There's one more European one in there. One more European one, and then one non-European one. Hmm. Okay, I'm thinking of efficiency. I'm thinking Germany. No, actually. <laughs> I suppose they were also busy rebuilding still at that point. Uh, yeah. 
Do you want me to give them to you? I'll go on. I'm never going to guess. <laughs> yeah. So it's Canada and Italy. Ah, yeah. I should have thought of Canada, but Italy, huh? Yeah, actually, of the seven countries on that list, five of them were American rockets. So actually, it's only France and the Soviet Union that used their own rockets to get up. So that's probably why these countries didn't spring to mind for you, because... Yeah, they weren't. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of going, who's got that sort of modern rocketry side of things? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I have to admit, like, places like, obviously the UK, I think, is working on a spaceport because there's some talk of where it's going to be, and I know Scotland was a potential site. But the likes of Italy, I don't really think of when it comes to sort of space programs space. so much. Yeah, no, neither do I. Yeah. So those were the six, and then it was Australia was number seven to be in space with an unmanned mission on November 29th, 1967. It's a little strange, I think, at times to think that we'd gone from, I mean, obviously, again, the US and the USSR had satellites up earlier, but to have gone from Australia launching its first satellite in 67 and the first people walking on the moon in 69, (laughs) like two years... Yeah. That's a little wild. really crazy. It is. So, actually, my odd end also has something to do about something being launched into space. But not a, well, sort of a satellite in that it's a space telescope. So this is the James Webb Space Telescope. Hey. <laughs> which is slightly infamous amongst astronomers for reasons that I'll get into shortly. So, for those who haven't heard of it before, this is the Hubble's successor, effectively. It will be the largest space telescope ever built, once it's up there. And it'll be observing in the visible, near-infrared, and mid-infrared. So that's about 0.6 up to around 28 micrometers, for those who know their wavelengths of light. And for direct comparison, Hubble's range was 0.1 up to 2.4 micrometers. So compared to Hubble's capacity, it actually opens up a lot more to the higher range. Although there are other space telescopes that cover different ranges, you know. (laughs) You can't expect one telescope to do absolutely everything. (laughs) It's a collaboration between NASA, ESA, that's the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Energy, which doesn't have a nice, easy-to-pronounce acronym. (laughs) And it's also a bit like Hubble in that its proposed launch time and budget have steadily been going the direction that uh, (laughs) people who write budgets don't really like. Uh, So we'll start with the delays. This is the main reason it's infamous amongst astronomers. So in 1997, it was meant to launch in 2007. (laughs) Uh, That didn't happen. In 2006, they were saying 2014 also didn't happen. The most recent update I've got on this list was around 2013. It was meant to be 2018. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. (laughs) So it's become sort of like a running joke amongst astronomers that the James Webb will in fact never launch. (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of the budget, the initial budget was about half a billion US dollars. And as of March this year, what they have actually spent, 9.66 billion (laughs) dollars. Oh, Jesus, I didn't know that. That's a slight (laughs) budget increase, isn't it? (laughs) But it is now all built, and it's in the process of being transferred into space. So what you may be thinking is, how do you transport a $10 billion telescope? 
And the answer is very carefully. (laughs) It was shipped from California, which is where it was being constructed, over to French Guiana, where it's going to be launched, which was a journey overseas of around 5,800 kilometres, or equivalently 3,600 miles. And it took between the 26th of September and the 12th of October. So it was a very slow trip, which is necessary when you're working with something quite fragile. They really didn't want anything bad to happen to it. Once it got there, it was delivered by road to the French Guianan spaceport in Kourou. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. (laughs) And it was transported in a special suitcase designed specifically for it, which is meant to protect it from damage, including things like rainfall, so you don't want your space telescopes getting all wet and potentially... I mean, imagine if some component got rusty. And as well as that, just vibrations, which are a very big concern. And, as I mentioned, travelled very slowly across that sea. That was around 5 to 10 kilometres an hour at most. And I'm fairly sure... I mean, I think the average human walking speed is around 4 kilometres per hour. (laughs) So, if you're at a brisk walk... You could have kept pace with this thing, assuming you could also walk on water. (laughs) The plan was to spend the next two months prepping ahead of a planned 18th of December launch date. But the way I'm saying this was going to make you think something went wrong, and it did. (laughs) So on the 26th of November, news came out that the launch is being delayed after an incident which was reported as a sudden, unplanned release of a clamp band, which is a piece of equipment to attach the telescope onto the rocket that will put it in orbit. Sudden, unplanned release. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is beautiful NASA tech speak. Uh, Sudden, unplanned release is NASA ease for we slightly dropped it. (laughs) Oops. So, of course, they want to take some time to run some tests and make sure that everything is still okay. Before we launch the $10 billion telescope. (laughs) Mm. Because once these things are in space, obviously, things get a lot harder to fix. And again, there was a case where things went wrong with Hubble, which is fairly famous, again, amongst astronomers. The main mirror used to make images had what turned out to be a tiny, tiny, tiny little defect in its manufacture. And I mean, obviously you couldn't see this by eye, But you could see it by image, and what it did was make what were meant to be these beautiful, crisp images were all blurry. And, of course, you can't really fix something like that very easily when it's in space. You can't go up with a team of dedicated mirror grinders who are capable of working to that level of ludicrous precision. So what they had to do then was effectively give Hubble glasses. (laughs) They built some kit that would precisely correct for the issues in Hubble's vision, and from that we get the images which Hubble is now famous for. So it worked out in the end, but it would have been a lot less expensive (laughs) if it had worked in the first place. So naturally, we're trying to avoid that and fix any potential problems while the James Webb is still firmly on the ground. So as you might expect, this clamp releasing vibrated the telescope, which is something they were very firmly trying not to do. So again, you run the risk of something getting knocked out of alignment and just messing up the whole image production process, which is really not something anyone wants, because a lot of people are very excited to get these images. 
not just for sort of general prettiness, but also for actual scientific purposes. There's a reason that that ten billion pounds have been poured into this telescope, and it's not just pretty pictures. <laughs> Although they will be very pretty, no doubt. Yeah, probably. So they have now checked the telescope over, and at present, at time of recording, everything seems to be okay. It doesn't look like there's been any actual issues which might affect the telescope's operation or its image-producing ability. So the launch has been slightly delayed still, but it's now on schedule to launch on the 22nd of December at 12.20pm GMT. So if you'd like a little bit of pre-Christmas viewing, you can watch a telescope being launched. And hopefully none of the rest of that NASA jargon will have to be used. <laughs> yeah. We're already how many years delayed? So 2007 was the original, right? 2007 was the original, although I think at that point it was still very much in the planning stages. So they were expecting, expecting. to get like a little bit of wiggle room on that. But yeah, so it's... You know, 14 years is a long time between initial planned launch date and actual launch date. <laughs> so let's very much hope that everything goes well. So obviously in 14 years, that's quite a lot of tech advancement. Is it all the still the same instrumentation and stuff that's going up as... You know, I'm not actually sure. I would imagine that, you know, as technology progressed... If there was any significant improvements they could make, they would have done so. And given that initially they were planning to launch in a decade's time, I expect they sort of anticipated things improving as they went. Yeah, that's true. So I think with all these missions, you kind of expect. Mm -hmm. By the time it's in the sky, you're going to be working on something more precise. Mm -hmm. But they do tend to have quite a decent long working life. So even if we realistically could make a slightly better telescope it's much more sense to just keep using the ones that we've got until it's no longer practical to do so. Yeah, Because absolutely. it's already miles ahead of Hubble. <laughs> yeah. And we've gotten a lot of good stuff out of Hubble. We can still use Hubble. Like, Hubble's still very handy. <laughs> 100%. So mm. even if, technically speaking, we maybe could, a couple of years down the line, make a much better telescope... A combination of, you know, how long it would take to put it all together and also the cost means that, realistically, we will keep using the James Webb until things either significantly change about the expense of putting big telescopes into orbit or something goes wrong with it and it breaks, which hopefully won't happen <laughs> for many imagine? years. Can you imagine as soon as it gets into space there's a rapid unplanned disassembly? No! <laughs> Please, please don't jinx the James Webb, Marion. Please oh, don't jinx the James it. Webb. It doesn't need it. <laughs> but, so yes, hopefully everyone can tune in for a launch that goes more or less exactly as planned. Hopefully. <laughs> on the 22nd of December. And since we're already talking about things to look out for in the sky, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The night sky for December 2021. As darkness falls, the square of Pegasus is setting towards the western horizon. The top left-hand star, Alpha Rats, is actually Alpha Andromedae, and it leads you towards the Andromeda galaxy M31, 
and there are instructions as to how to find it on my Night Sky page. The only way now to find it is to actually go into my Astronomy Digest. If you just search for Astronomy Digest, perhaps with Morrison, you'll find it. And near the top, it has the link to the Night Sky page, which has got obviously what I am saying, but lots of diagrams and charts as well. Above the Square of Pegasus is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And down to its left, towards the south, lies Perseus, with its bright star Murfak, and also the interesting star Algol, the demon star, because it winks. It's actually an occulting binary. Then down below, now rising towards the south from the southeast, is the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with those two rather lovely open clusters the Hyades and the Pleiades lying above. Coming out from the southeast is obviously the constellation of Orion the Hunter. Its wonderful bright stars, Betelgeuse at the top left and Rigel to the right. And beneath the three stars that make up the belt is the sword of Orion. And there you'll spot a little misty object. It's the Orion Nebula, one of the most beautiful objects in the night sky. Up to the left of Orion, we have Gemini, the heavenly twins, with their two bright stars, Castor above and Pollux below. So we're beginning to have a lovely part of the sky to see. The southern part, the Taurus, Orion, Gemini, Canis Major, is one of the nicest parts of the night sky. Now for the planets. Firstly, Jupiter. As darkness falls at the start of December, Jupiter, having a magnitude of minus 2.29 and an angular size of 38.3 arc seconds, may be seen in the south. In fact, it transits at 1715 GMT with an elevation of about 24 degrees on the first. By month's end, its magnitude will have reduced slightly to minus 2.13 and the angular size to 35.36 arc seconds and it will be seen in the south-southwest at nightfall. Happily, Jupiter has climbed up the ecliptic somewhat, so the atmosphere will not hinder our view of this giant of the solar system quite as much as it has done for the last couple of years. Well, Saturn precedes Jupiter into the sky, and will be seen towards the south-southwest at nightfall. It then shines with a magnitude of plus 0.7, with its disc 16 arc seconds across and the rings spanning some 37 arc seconds. By month's end, it will have a reduced brightness of magnitude plus 0.71 with a 15.46 arc second disc. Sadly, its elevation will only be about 17 degrees at the start of December, so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. Mercury. Having passed behind the sun at the beginning of December, makes an appearance after sunset in the last few days of the month, very low in the southwest below Venus. It will have a magnitude of about 0.73 and an angular size of just 6 arc seconds. Now binoculars might well be needed to spot it, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Mars 
This month, Mars climbs out of the sun's glare in the pre-dawn sky, having a magnitude of 1.64 on the first, with an angular size of 3.77 arc seconds. It'll be then best seen at around 6.41 GMT in the southeast. By month's end, the best time to observe it will be about 7 o'clock GMT, when its magnitude will have increased slightly to 1.54 and an angular size of 4 degrees. Again, binoculars may well be needed to bring it out of the sun's glare, but please do not use them after the sun has risen. Venus. Venus has been low in the evening sky for some months now. It starts December with a magnitude of minus 4.87 and an angular size of 39 arc seconds, but will only have an elevation of about 8 degrees at sunset, looking towards the south-southwest. It may well be lost in the sun's glare until around 1600. During the month it falls back towards the sun and will be soon lost in the sun's glare. As the ecliptic is at a shallow angle to the horizon in the latter part of the year, it has never got to a high evening elevation during this apparition. Finally, the highlights of the month. On the night sky page, I give you directions of finding some of the interesting objects in the night sky this month. The double cluster and the demon star Algol, for example. M31, the Andromeda Galaxy, and around New Moon you might be able to spot M33 in Triangulum. It's still worth observing Jupiter, although now at a relatively low elevation, only seen for an hour or two after sunset, it's still not a bad month to observe it. It lies in the southern part of the ecliptic, and sadly will only have reached about 20 degrees elevation when crossing the meridian. An interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned some 40,000 kilometers across, but now appears to be less than half that size. You can find Uranus in December, and on the night sky page, I have a chart to help you find it. And you'll see in the highlights, it's quite close to the moon, which will give you a chance to see it one night this month should it be clear. On December the 6th, after sunset, there's actually a very nice lineup of three planets and the moon. So if hopefully it's clear after sunset on the 6th, there'll be a lineup of Jupiter up left, then Saturn and Venus, along with a very thin crescent moon. Again, you may need binoculars, but please don't use them until the sun has set. On December the 8th, after sunset, the moon will have moved further south and will actually lie just below Jupiter and Saturn if you look south after sunset. On the 14th of December, there's a chance of finding Uranus fairly easily. And I've given you a nice chart to show how to do that on the night sky page. It's up to the left of the moon, not too far away, and you should therefore be able to find it without too much trouble. On the 16th, in the late evening, the moon lies below the Hyades and Pleiades clusters in Taurus. And on the 22nd, 23rd of the month, in the late evening, 
there's a chance of spotting some of the meteors from the Ursid meteor shower. The problem this year is that the moon is getting close towards third quarter and so its light will somewhat hinder our view. The radiant lies close to the star Kokab in Ursa Minor, hence their name. So look northwards at high elevation to have a hope of seeing them. On December the 31st, before dawn, if clear and given a low horizon towards the southeast, Mars should be visible down to the left of a very thin, waning crescent moon. And finally, an interesting object on the lunar surface, best seen on the evenings of the 12th and 26th of the month, when the terminator lies close by, is what's called the straight wall, or rupus recta. To be honest, it's not really a wall, but a gentle scarp. And as Sir Patrick Moore has said, neither is it a wall, nor is it straight. Well, it's not a bad month for observing the heavens. I do hope you have some luck. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Heritino Mogasanu and Samuel Leske with The Night Sky Where You Are. Kia ora, and I'm very glad to be back with December 2021. For the Southern Hemisphere, I'm Haritina Mogoshano. In the Southern Hemisphere is summertime, but everything else is the same. We too are preparing for Christmas and to celebrate the anniversary of Apollo 8, the first people to ever go around the moon on Christmas Day 1968. Speaking about the moon, this month the new moon is on the 4th of December. This is when it's great to go deep sky observing. First quarter is on the 11th of December, which means the moon is in the sky in the first part of the night, and it's setting after midnight. Full moon occurs on the 19th of December. We hope you like long walks under the moonlight, because no deep sky objects will be easily visible in the sky, as full moon does make light pollution, and you will have to use a moon filter if you want to observe the moon. Otherwise, you might get a little bit blinded from too much light. And finally, last quarter on the 27th of December, which means the moon is in the sky in the last part of the night, so rising after midnight. I always remember these things first quarter, the moon is in the sky in the first part of the night, and last quarter, the moon is in the sky in the last part of the night. It's a good memnonic. Venus, Saturn and Jupiter are beautifully aligned at sunset and visible at the beginning of the month just after sunset. Venus is the closest to the horizon, followed by Saturn and then Jupiter. Towards the end of the month, Venus will get too close to the sun, but Neptune and Uranus are visible all night long. Mars is in Libra and moving into Scorpius by the end of the month, which means it will be visible in the morning sky then. I often get comments like, who can remember so many stars, or it's really hard to remember all those constellations and so on. Well, this is true. Many cultures, we all know that, invented stories about different stars in the sky that made things easier to remember. Some cultures, in particular, had seasonal asterisms, and some of these asterisms were encompassing the entire sky. How to remember all of it? It's by linking to things that are memorable, or make your own stories. With that in mind, let's look at the sky in December in New Zealand. Imagine this. December is very famous for Christmas, and Christmas is very famous for Christmas trees. 
As I was learning the South Celestial Night Sky, one night it occurred to me that right now in December the entire region of the South Celestial Pole looks like a giant Christmas tree. Of course I'm biased and I love Christmas trees as well, but the trick helped me remember where everything was. Let's look at that patch of the sky. The sky looks like a Christmas tree only in December, just after sunset. If you look on the southern part of the sky, I will start at the top with Akenar. We can give that the magical tree-topper function. It's very high in the sky, about 75 degrees from the horizon. Then, just a bit lower down, the Magellanic clouds are like two patches of snow, one-third down the tree. And at the base, look under the Southern Cross, those two stars, Gamma Centauri, Mulifine, and Delta Centauri, together with the Saturn Cross and Musca, can be the trunk. All the other stars in Centaurus and Vela can be the decorations on the lower branches. Can you see the giant celestial Christmas tree? We might not have snow this time of the year in the Southern Hemisphere, but it's like nature compensated for that with a celestial Christmas tree just in time for Christmas. Then, in the north, the great square of Pegasus is the only horse that looks like a square, one of the very few northern constellations that is not upside down. Pegasus pulls a sleigh. Did you see that coming? We can make it up out of the Pleiades, Hyades and Orion. Draw a line between these asterisms and you can see the sleigh. Orion is the back of the sleigh where the driver sits and the Pleiades is the front where the runners are curved. Can you see it? We don't have reindeers in New Zealand, so Pegasus, the flying horse, will have to do. Running behind the sleigh, on the ground, is a dog. This is the dog star, Sirius. He's very happy in the snowy road, which is the Milky Way. We can imagine that the sleigh has just come up from behind the Christmas tree and flying across the sky to the Northern Hemisphere. But there is one more star, my favorite star here, Canopus. I call the star the cat star, as every serious astronomer in New Zealand who wants a cat should contemplate this name first. And there is a story behind it as well. Halfway through, from the top of the Christmas tree, which is the star Akenar, of course, our cat Canopus jumps to catch the back of the sleigh. By the looks of it, it will probably land on the dog. So we can turn the night sky in December, in New Zealand, into a big Christmas scene. We have a horse, sleigh, and a big Christmas tree. Draw a line from Sirius to Canopus, which are two very bright stars. It will lead you to the Magellanic Clouds. Sirius is in fact the brightest star in the sky. Canopus is the second brightest star in the sky. And to the right of the imaginary Christmas tree is Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star in the sky. Lower on the northern horizon, underneath the galloping hind legs of Pegasus, Andromeda Galaxy is a smidge of light. It's the furthest object we can see with the naked eye, 2.5 million light years distance from us. When the light that we see now from Andromeda left the galaxy on Earth, some of our hominid ancestors, facing food shortages, developed larger brains as an evolutionary strategy. This led to the genus Homo, which first arose 2.5 million years ago. Homo habilis developed as the ice ages began, a time known as Pleistocene. And who knows, maybe the first human memories of winter come from then as well. 
let's look at some binocular objects. Binoculars are really awesome because we use both eyes. Some very cool objects this month lay low, so they're not that great to see, but best objects to start with are obviously the moon, the planets, and double stars like Alpha Centauri, Gamma Velorum, Beta Musque, and Epsilon Carine. The Pleiades, Andromeda Galaxy, they're all great binocular targets. Then, of course, the Magellanic Clouds are great to look at. Let's look at what we call deep sky objects as well. Some favorite of ours are visible in the night sky in December. The first one is M74, which is very hard to see due to its very low surface brightness. With very dark skies, it can be seen from the wire wrapper. You would need a Bortle Scale 2 or 1 sky to see it. Luckily, it's not that bad for galaxy hunting in December, as not too far from M74 is the bright galaxy of M77, also known as Cetus A. This one is easy to spot even from central Wellington. We won't see the faint outer regions of the spiral arms, but the bright active core is very visible, and at 33 million light years distance, the photons from this object have spent a long time making their way to Wellington. We do have some very impressive galaxies in the southern sky. One of these, NGC 253, also known as the Sculptor Galaxy, is a large spiral galaxy at an angle to us, so it looks like an elongated ellipse. It's relatively bright and easy to spot if you've got plenty of aperture. You'll have to put your light bucket on the back of your scooter and head up to a dark sky location to make out much detail, but if you do, you'll be in for a treat as you take the complex shapes and clumps of detail visible on the disk. Sculptor is about 12 million light years away and appears about 27 arc minutes long, so it's quite big. Quite close to Sculptor is the tight spiral galaxy known as NGC 300. This is a great galaxy to view as it's quite close at only 6.6 million light years. For northern sky observers, it's a bit like a mini M33. Viewing from Wellington will show the bright core, but you will have to head to the hills to get any detail out of the spiral arms. Keen astrophotographers will have a better time in Wellington as this galaxy is bright enough to burn through the light pollution and produce quite a nice picture. The problem with viewing galaxies is that they don't really look like anything in those beautiful photographs people take. They are often just a faint grey smudge in the eyepiece and you have to use your best visual observing skills to get any detail out of what you're looking at. This is when it's great to swing the telescope around to the majestic brilliance of the likes of the Tarantula Nebula. This gives you a picture in the eyepiece very similar to what photographers capture just not in color. The big giant bright complex of gas clouds and massive stars look like a spider just a little bit, hence its name, and it is a must-see of the Saturn sky, and it's almost compulsory viewing on any observing evening. At this time of the year, the two galaxies groups of the Fornax cluster and the Grus Quartet are also in a good position for viewing. As the month advances, the position of the Fornax cluster improves and the position of the Grus Quartet gets worse, so get in early to see those four stunning galaxies. Both groups are between 60 million light-years and 80 million light-years distant, with the Grus Quartet being three galaxies visually quite close to each other and another galaxy a little further away. With the right eyepiece, you can get all four in the same field of view. With the Fornax cluster, it's possible to get up to 11 galaxies at once 
in the same field of view. These are mainly elliptical galaxies, including the stunning Fornax A. December in the Southern Hemisphere is generally the unhappy month for the astronomer, unless your thing is solar astronomy, because the nights are short and the temperatures are creeping up. It seems to take forever for the night to get truly dark and forever for the telescope to cool down. Unlike the rest of the population, stargazing people and astronomers are craving cold front to blow through and give us a nice cool patch of air to settle the thermals and give us some great scene. The good news is that this time of the year is perfect for an all-nighter of astronomy, and I mean all 4.5 hours of astronomical night that we get as the Milky Way passes through the zenith in the early hours and there is a wealth of deep sky objects to fill your eyepiece. As you start the evening, a good place is Orion, that majestic constellation that is so easy to find in the northeast at about 35 degrees in the elevation. With a pair of binoculars, an observer can easily see the great Orion Nebula, Messier 42 or M42, which is a huge star-forming region just above Orion's belt, which is made of three stars, Alnitak, Alnilam and Mintaka. Mintaka is very dear to navigators as it's located exactly on the celestial equator. And if you remember the sleigh, Orion makes the back of the sleigh. Here in New Zealand, the asterism of Orion's belt and Orion's sword is also known as the pot. Orion has a number of very interesting stars, including Betelgeuse, which is a red supergiant and one of the largest stars in the sky. It is one of the few stars that have been imaged and it's unusual in shape. It's quite apparent showing as probably has a very unstable atmosphere causing the asymmetric bulging of the star. Because of its massive size, Betelgeuse will not live for much longer, maybe only another 1000 years or it might have already exploded. But given it's 400 or so light years away, we might not find that out for a while. When it goes, it will create quite a spectacle on Earth, as it will be a very bright supernova, and it will probably be even visible in daylight. M42 is relatively close to us at about 1,400 light years, which makes it one of the brightest nebulae in the sky. With a telescope, the M42, can appear to have a greenish tint. Unlike the bright red photos that are often published, it is estimated that M42 is about 24 light years across and that is part of a much larger structure known as the Orion Molecular Cloud, which extends for about 10 degrees across the whole constellation of Orion. This cloud includes the famous Horse Head Nebula, B33 Flame Nebula, NGC 2024, M78 and Barnard's Loop, Sharpless 2276. If you do have an infrared telescope, and not very many of us have that, an amazing object is the Beckley Neugebauer object, which is the brightest star in infrared. Worth looking up pictures of that. M42 is one of the most photographed objects due to its brightness and visibility in both the northern and southern hemispheres. These are some of my favorite things about December, other than sleigh bells and snowflakes and warm woolen mittens. And from here in New Zealand, I wish you clear skies so that you can always see the stars and always remember we are made of the same stardust as they are. Thanks for that, Haratina and Sam. And now to the feedback. 
Well, we don't have anyone in particular to mention during this section. I'd like to give a big thanks to everyone on various social media who's been asking after the Jodcast how we're doing and wishing for us to come back. Yeah, it's been really lovely to see the support online and people missing us. It's just been so hard with the pandemic and not being able to get into the studio. Mm -hmm. I mean, it already is going to make a world of difference for our editors to just be able to take these two audio tracks coming from exactly the same place, already perfectly synced up, and not need to worry about combining different audio files and accounting for latency from us recording in different locations. And all of that is assuming we could record from home, which a lot of people can't, and getting guests in to record from home, it just, it adds so much more faff. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure you've heard quite a lot of from us in the past, and we really do appreciate your patience. Yeah. And we are optimistic that we can keep getting things back on schedule. It's going to depend a little bit, of course, on how the situation develops, but... It is really nice to be back in the studio. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) And if you want to get in touch with us at the Jodcast, you can do so via the website at jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post because we are back in the office. The mailing address is on the website. Thanks to Tom Scragg for the interview. The editors were George Bendo, Michael Wright and Thomas Rennie. The producers were Michael Wright and Thomas Rennie. Until next time, Jordan! Jordan.